Welcome to the latest podcast from the London Institute of Banking and Finance, lifelong partners for financial education. Learn more about our qualifications at www.libf.ac.uk. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and uh, a very warm welcome to the Painters Hall. My name is Alex Fraser, I'm the Chief Executive of the Institute and I'm absolutely delighted uh, that you could join us for the first ever trustees lecture given tonight by the Right Honourable John Redwood MP. Before we start, we had a few crises, timing crises during the day, so I wrote a few words uh, to explain a bit about what we do for those of you who may not be entirely familiar with the Institute. Uh, so I'll hope you'll humour me uh, while I just go through some of the uh, things that we've achieved in our 140-year history. So our roots lie in Victorian England and the vast hordes of bank clerks that were tied to their desks in gloomy banking halls for decades. The opportunities for young men of ambition and talent in those days were very few and far between, unless, of course, you happened to be married to the boss's daughter. We, the Institute of Bankers, changed all that. When Matthew Jones sat his banking exams in the 1880s, he set out on a journey that took him from the lowest of the lowest bank clerk to the very top of one of the largest joint stock banks in the country. He was born in 1864 in the sprawling slums of East London. His father was a tailor. At 16, Matthew, who had shown aptitude for mathematics, he left school and thanks to his father's connections with a wealthy banker, he was granted an interview for a job of clerk at one of the London's largest banks. Now, without that family connection, he wouldn't have got that far. And if he was a woman, he wouldn't have got that far. Things have changed a lot. But his father gave him a very smart new coat, bought him a pair of boots. So when he set out for his interview, uh, he really looked the part. Because in those days, what mattered was your coat, your hat, your waistcoat, much more than what you knew and your ability. The interview was conducted in a small, dusty room at the very far end of this large banking hall. And he was asked lots of very interesting questions at the interview, which he wasn't really expecting. His moral character was subjected to quite a lot of scrutiny. He was asked about his family circumstances. He was asked to write numbers and letters on a piece of paper, but he managed to pass all of these tests. And about three weeks later, a letter arrived at Matthew's house and he'd got the job. 25 pounds a year. Wow. Paid quarterly? Mm, maybe not so good. In arrears? Uh, maybe not. To topple that, his poor father had to lay down an enormous sum of money to provide a bond in case Matthew made any mistakes. After a few months, he began to realise that life as a bank clerk was not as exciting as he had hoped. There were so many clerks of all shapes and sizes, and some were very old indeed. It was not uncommon in Victorian England to see men in their 70s working as bank clerks. Will we go back there? Who knows? 
Occasionally, there was a frisson of excitement. And this is all true because Matthew wrote it all down. So the frisson was caused when one of the senior partners of the bank came through the hall. This particular partner had a morbid fear of catching a disease, which I guess in a time when cholera was still rife in London was perhaps not so far-fetched. His imminent arrival was announced in a stentorian voice by one of the bank clerks, at which point every clerk had to disappear under the desk and wait for the all clear on pain of being sacked. But despite Mr. Hall's appearances, life was overall pretty dull. There were textbooks, but they weren't always that helpful. And I'll give you an example of why they weren't. So this is from another person who wrote a fascinating diary. And this is what he said. A customer came into the bank one day with a very sparkling female to whom he was temporarily attached and a magnificent spaniel. I, the bank clerk, admired the dog, so he asked me what I would give for him. I mentioned some moderate figure at which he laughed derisively. He then pointed to the lady and asked me, what will you give, what will you give me for her? And I've often wondered since that day what the correct answer should have been. I can find no guidance in Paget's questions and answers on banking practice. So textbooks were no good, but one evening Matthew was invited by a colleague to attend a lecture on banking held at King's College in the Strand. At the end of the lecture, the professor spoke about exams you could take after the lecture series had finished. If you passed the exams, you became member of the new Institute of Bankers. Matthew thought this all sounded pretty exciting. He attended the lectures and became one of our very first members. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through the whole 140 years. Uh, as the bank expanded its branch network, what's a branch network? Who knows? As it expanded its branch network, his career took him to far-flung places like Leeds and Wolverhampton as branch manager and eventually just before the First World War, he became a member of the board's directors. So our qualifications, our education, been helping young people for over 140 years, and they unlocked a whole new world of opportunity for Matthew. Our exams were sat by hundreds of thousands of young people over the years. Many of you sat them here. Many of you in the room sat them. There are some very touching photographs of people sitting in very difficult circumstances. The picture shows people studying for banking exams in the middle of a German uh, prisoner of war camp. So people really valued the education. From the 1950s onwards, we expanded. Outwards, we branched into Hong Kong, Singapore, much of Sub Saharan Africa. But from the 1990s onwards, our world changed forever. Banks moved away from requiring people to sit professional qualifications. Today, we offer a very broad range of programs. We're the only provider in the UK of financial capability qualification in schools. And I'm absolutely delighted that 50,000 young people in over 800 schools this year will benefit from sitting one of those qualifications, helping them make better sense of the finance of the financial world and hopefully leading to better decisions. Our university degrees at undergraduate and postgraduate levels offer students the opportunity, and we have some undergraduates here tonight. It's 
great to see you. Offered students the opportunity to learn from academics who combine real-world experience with a passion for pedagogy. They're taught in very small class sizes, and from the very first day, they become part, a very important part of our network. We're delighted that in the two measures that really matter to us, student satisfaction and employability, we rank in the top handful of universities in the UK. We still offer a range of professional qualifications, and we're helping banks in the UK and overseas make sense of the implications of digital technology and the transformation they will need to lead. We've come a long way since Matthew and the CAD with the Spaniel. The roles we are preparing people for are hugely different, but our mission is constant. And I just leave you with one thought. We're about to celebrate 140 years, and if you would like to get involved in any way with our work to help the next generation, then I'd be delighted to hear from you. And with that, it's my great pleasure to introduce my chairman, Professor Stephen Haberman, who's going to introduce tonight's speaker. Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's my pleasure to welcome you all to the first Trustees Annual Lecture and to welcome tonight's guest speaker, the Right Honourable John Redwood, MP. Now, John is one of those people who I guess we all think we know. We've seen, seen him on TV, but let me tell you a little bit about him, and I shall be brief because there is a lot to say. John is probably best known as a politician, but he's also a businessman, an author, and an academic. As a businessman, he founded an investment management business. He's been both an executive and a non-executive chairman of a quoted industrial PLC, and he's been chairman of a global manufacturing company. He began his impressive political career as an Oxfordshire County Councillor in the 1970s, and by the mid-1980s, he was chief policy advisor to Margaret Thatcher. As some of us will remember, he urged her to begin a great privatization program, and then he took privatization around the world as one of its first advocates. In 1987, John was elected to Parliament as the member for Wokingham and was soon a minister, joining the front bench a few years later as parliamentary undersecretary in the DTI. He supervised the liberalisation of the telecoms industry in the early 1990s. He became minister for local government and inner cities after the 1992 general election, and he was then secretary of state for Wales. He stood for the leadership of the Conservative Party twice. He's been chairman of the Conservative Economics, Economic Affairs Committee since 2010, and he remains the Member of Parliament for Wokingham. There's a lot more I could say about his impressive political career, but I'm now going to move on to his academic career, which is no less impressive. He won a free place at Kent College, Canterbury, and graduated from Magdalen College, Oxford, with a BA, and then obtained a DPhil from All Souls College, Oxford. He's a distinguished fellow of All Souls, and he's a visiting professor at Middlesex University Business School. John has authored many books covering subjects such as the relationship between the European Union, 
China and the United States, and why the UK should reject further European integration, something we seem to be doing at the moment. His most recent publications are, I want to make a difference, but I don't like politics, which examines the reason for the decline in membership of political parties and the decline in numbers voting. And also, after the credit crunch, no more boom and bust, a book which considers the reasons behind the global recession and why Britain has been hit particularly hard. I suspect that the second of those books might well be featuring in tonight's lecture. I'm now delighted to hand over to John to speak to us this evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The city I first went to work in a good few years ago now was a very different place from today. The past is a foreign country. And you reminded me on a very rare trip down memory lane to think what it was like. And I remember being made the secretary of one of the sort of executive committees looking at the development of the investment business I was working for. And they received a presentation from a rather pushy entrepreneur in those days who thought they needed publicity and PR advice, and he was just the man to deliver it. And they considered this, and after he'd gone, um, they turned to each other and one said to the other, well, I don't think we need any of that sort of thing. It took us 10 years to make up our mind to have a brass plate on the door with our name on it. <laughs> and that was the, the mood, that you needed a certain distance, that you weren't involved in this hectic media world that we're now in, involved with, that a, a bank, as that was, or an investment house, needed to have a certain cachet and a, a certain reserve, uh, which was then rather than now. But in that first job as a, an investment analyst, uh, I learnt the hard way just how bad central banking can be, how bad commercial banking can be, and what happens to your life when you're, you're caught up in the whirlwind of a recession, a banking crash, a crunch. Because I went to work just in time for the so-called oil crash of 1974-5, it was much more than an oil crash. It was a banking, secondary banking and property crash as well. And I remember starting off as an analyst in, in other sectors. Uh, my training was to go and have good lunches with stockbrokers who knew more about the subject than I did, and try and make sure uh, over the, the wine and cheese I, I got some information from them. But the main advantage I had was I could go and visit any major company in the country and talk to their executive chairman or chief executive or managing director uh, because we had big shareholdings in each of these companies and it was a fabulous education to be able to sit there with failed companies, good companies, brilliant companies and learn how they did it uh, and what they made of it. But I was soon aware that we were in the middle of a major financial crisis and I was told this because my employer said we're halving the research department, you're on the right side, you will survive this time but you will now double up your workload. This is the workload from another person you're doing. And, and they threw me, amongst other sectors, the property sector. And I started to read the reports and balance sheets of the United Kingdom property companies uh, in the middle 1970s. And I couldn't believe it, the horror story. How could this have happened? 
because there you saw a group of apparently intelligent business people who'd built up large property empires on colossal debts. And the, the debts were clearly excessive because the rentals were never going to pay the interest bill of the debts. And when you asked them why they'd done this, uh, they said, oh, well, because we assumed that the property values would go up. We assumed that we would make capital gains and we sell buildings occasionally to release the capital gains to pay off the debts. And on those balance sheets was etched the tragedy because, of course, uh, as we dipped into recession for a variety of reasons, those property values came crashing down and those boards looked very foolish. Their banks looked rather foolish as well. It was very much the case that if you owed the bank a million pounds, you've got a problem, but if you owed the bank a billion pounds, they had a problem. So in those days, a billion was a lot of money. Uh, and we saw unfolding this dreadful tragedy. So it led me to think about crises from an early day. And I've always been looking out for them. And I've had the misfortune to live through two further very large ones, both of which I'm pleased to say I predicted, but I'm miserable that I was right. There are times in life when you hope your forecast will go wrong. But the three I want to look at uh, as the prelude to my wider remarks and conclusions are the crisis of 74-6 when I first came in, the exchange rate mechanism crisis of 1990 to 92, which was particularly harsh on the United Kingdom, but a country like Italy was also damaged by it and thrown out of the exchange mechanism that they had devised. And then the much better known and large banking crash and great recession, <coughs> which was a transatlantic phenomenon, both American and European, uh, of recent unhappy memory. So how bad were these crises? Well, here you see uh, the unemployment figures, and you can see there, although it felt very painful and it felt there were a lot of people being sacked in 1974-6, unemployment was relatively low, even at the worst of the crisis, but everyone was an individual tragedy, a family or an individual that could no longer maintain their living standards. Uh, there was then a, a much bigger crash in employment uh, in the ERM crisis, and then a very noticeable but not quite so big uh, a result from the, the more, more recent crisis. But high unemployment is the big cost that people pay for bad central banking, for bad commercial banking, for bad business, and above all, for bad policy in total. In a democracy, I think you do need to blame the responsible government, uh, although it may be a central bank's decision that really caused the difficulty, or it may be commercial banks' decisions. We have accountable figures, chances of the Exchequer and the Prime Minister, and they naturally have to take ultimate responsibility. So how much damage did these recessions do to GDP? And there you can see that the 74-6 one was bad, uh, the ERM one wasn't quite so bad on GDP change, though it was worse than the first one on unemployment. And then the biggest of them all was the one we've recently lived through with a very dramatic change to our national output and national income. And inflation behaved very differently. And 
this is where the past is again a foreign country. We spent most of our time in the 70s and 80s worrying about inflation. And that is the reason why that inflation peaked at almost 27% uh, in the crisis and crash of the mid-1970s. The 80s saw us wrestle it down with certain pain and difficulty in the early 1980s. And it was then under reasonable control um, up to the um, beginning of this century. And then in the most recent crisis, we had a completely new phenomenon in the post-war West, and that was deflation. And suddenly we were fighting price falls. And people discovered that maybe there is one thing worse than price inflation, and that is price deflation. Because if you get into persistent and difficult price deflation, uh, then people have got every reason to delay purchases. It would be cheaper tomorrow, it would be cheaper next month. I don't need to hurry to replace my good or to improve my product. And that is corrupting of the whole enterprise mechanism and business wish to, to grow and develop. So what were the underlying causes of these bad incidents in our economic history? Well, in 74 to 6, there was undoubtedly a very rapid monetary and fiscal expansion, uh, particularly monetary, and that led to this enormous inflation. And the inflation became so big, the government couldn't ignore it, uh, and then the actions to correct inflation when it had become persistent were very damaging to output. You had to put up interest rates a lot, you had to restrict credit, uh, you had to try and tackle bad debts, you had to put quantitative restrictions on banks in those days to stop them lending more money, and so then you got the impact you saw on output uh, because the fight against inflation took priority. And we saw that the exchange rate was also very much in play. And the crisis got quite bleak in the United Kingdom in the middle 1970s, uh, leading to the point where uh, there were, was not sufficient reserve uh, in our foreign currency exchange reserves to defend the pound. They felt the pound, the Labour government, was falling too far too fast. They wanted to intervene across the exchanges. Uh, the UK needed access to hard currency, foreign currency, liquidity to settle its overseas debts and purchases. And so, in the end, the, the Labour government was reluctantly forced into the ignominy of going to the International Monetary Fund, normally reserved for poor and emerging market countries, and seeking a loan with conditions placed upon our economic policy. And as always with IMF recovery programmes, uh, they were of the austere kind, they were telling the, the then government they were spending too much, they were taxing too little, they were borrowing too much, that the strain of the public indebtedness was becoming too large, and this was adding to the, the strains on the exchange rate uh, and on the difficulties of settling our international obligations. And so there was a program of asset sales, spending reductions, and tax rises to try and tackle the underlying inflationary and monetary problem, which clearly made the recession deeper and worse because it contracted activity rather more. 1986 to 92 is rather different. And I put a longer time period in there 
as we were not in the European exchange rate mechanism throughout that time period. But we started behaving as if we were in the European exchange rate mechanism from the time I was in Downing Street. I well remember it because as the economic advisor to the Prime Minister, as well as the chief policy advisor, uh, I felt I had to advise her in private that the Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, was not absorbing the agreement we had, uh, that we would run a domestic monetary policy control to protect us from future inflation, uh, but had started shadowing the Deutschmark, trying to keep the pound in line with the Deutschmark, uh, because they felt that that would be an anchor against inflation, because Germany had very little inflation. I always thought that would be a deeply destabilizing policy. Uh, there was absolutely no reason why the monetary trajectory of Germany should be the right one for the United Kingdom, with different economy and different obligations. Uh, but I lost that battle, Prime Minister lost that battle, and we started shadowing the Deutschmark. And then from about the middle 80s, as a result of this, we had a massive e escalation in credit, big explosion in the amount of money advanced. And that came about because trying to keep in line with the Deutschmark at that point uh, meant we had to keep printing more money because the pound was undervalued in the eyes of the market, the pressures were all upwards, and so all the state could do to try and shadow the Deutschmark was to keep on printing more pounds and selling them across the exchanges uh, to try and reduce the uh, amount that people wanted to pay for the pound. And this extra liquidity found in part its way into the banking system, and with a fractional reserve banking system, as you will be aware, uh, if another billion pounds is deposited, then they can probably lend 10 billion on the back of it. There is a multiplier effect uh, because of their cash ratio and their reserve ratio, and so we saw a veritable explosion in credit in the later 1980s based on uh, our proxy membership uh, of the exchange rate mechanism. We then joined the exchange rate mechanism just before the end of Margaret Thatcher, uh, when John Major was quite insistent we should do so. And we formally and publicly locked into an exchange rate. It was a perfectly sensible rate to choose. It had been well researched by the Bank of England. It was in the middle of normal ranges. Uh, so I had no objection to the choice of the rate. I just felt that any rate would be wrong uh, because this was a dynamic market. And unfortunately, what went up can go down. And shortly after we joined the exchange rate mechanism, the markets became apprehensive about the incipient inflation problem in the United Kingdom and the excess credit that had been created by the proxy membership and the early membership of the ERM. And so they started selling the pound. And then when they do that, you had to put the process into a reverse. Uh, so you, you then had to uh, try and buttress the pound uh, in a way which contracted the number of pounds in the system and therefore contracted the credit that the banks could advance. So we lurched from a very accommodative policy with lots of credit and lots of loans to an extremely tough policy with very high interest rates uh, and with a big credit squeeze, which duly collapsed the, um, the economy quite rapidly. And we were left in the position where on the fatal last day They'd already got interest rates to 12%, uh, and the Chancellor was talking of raising them to 15% uh, to try and terrify the markets into accepting the pound was going to be defended, whereas, of course, the markets 
just gave a, an unpleasant laugh. They didn't believe that was at all feasible. Uh, I was in a very difficult position at the time. I was Minister for Local Government. Uh, I was doing a, a very open uh, radio broadcast with inviting people to ring in on local government subjects uh, from around the Midlands on the fateful day. And surprise, surprise, people didn't want to talk about local government. They were all ringing in, asking me what on earth was going on, and whether I supported it or not. And my private view was I didn't support it and I was going to go home to write my resignation letter, but I didn't blurt that out on the airwaves. Uh, I kept my call and said, I'm not the Chancellor Exchequer, I'm not in London, I can't think of anything helpful to say on this subject. I suggest you refer it to the Treasury and try to get it back to local government. I went home uh, mentally writing my resignation letter. Uh, I was going to meet my association that evening anyway, and I thought it was courtesy to tell them first, so I got it ready for my association. On my way into the meeting, fortunately, uh, one of my friends who knew me well said, isn't it great news? I said, what's great news? We're out. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can tear up my letter and change my speech. And I, on that night, mentally rejoined the government and immediately got hold of number 10 and said, now you take interest rates down to 5%. You are killing this economy. This is wicked. And they still didn't get it. They were still in this mode of we have to defend the pound and we have to controlled inflation. You've controlled inflation. 12% interest rates throttle all inflation and a lot of enterprise at the same time. Get the rates down. It took them another two months or so to get the rates down. But we eventually got there and we then had a perfectly good recovery. So, big hit. Totally wrong policy. It was monetary policy on autopilot. It was monetary policy based on this elementary error that just because a policy worked for Germany, it didn't mean it would work for the United Kingdom. So, 2006 to 10. Another sorry story, mainly of bad central banking, but ably assisted by dreadful commercial banking on the back of the signals that the central bank was turning out, and on the back of a common intellectual property that both the central bank and the commercial banks uh, in the second half of the first decade of this century believed that they had found new marvelous ways of managing risk. And they took the view that as long as a bank was really big and had lots of bad loans in dozens of countries, it would be remarkably stable. Whereas if it just had lots of bad loans in one country, even they saw that that was probably still an unstable bank. And they also thought that if you geared your balance sheet excessively with lots of derivatives, this would be a risk redu reduction exercise rather than a risk intensification exercise. I remember going to hear an analyst talk on this subject around 2006 when I was contemplating setting up an investment business and getting back into the investment world. And he certainly changed my view dramatically. I hadn't been studying these banks, I hadn't read their balance sheets. And he just said, read these balance sheets. These banks are in an extraordinarily overextended position. And I believed him. I went home and, as a good nerd does, started reading through some of these bank balance sheets. And I couldn't believe it. It was eye-popping. The ratios that I was used to 20 years earlier as being prudent had been completely scrapped. And the banks were, were down to very small percentages of capital and reserve based on this strange theory that 
if you had lots of bad risks everywhere, it wouldn't really be a risk because there would be a portfolio effect. <clears throat> Whereas, of course, if all the central banks at the same time decided to withdraw liquidity and cash, which is what they then decided to do, you were bound to have the grandmother and grandfather of all crashes because you had these deeply overexposed banks. So having read that, I set up my investment business with a couple of friends. The, the aim was that they were going to do all the work and I was going to be non-executive. It didn't quite work out like that. Um, and I got quite involved in the investment choices we were making and I insisted throughout uh, 08 and the first month of 09 that we either kept everybody in cash or we put everything into cash because I could see no point in throwing people's money away uh, when the central banks were being that wayward. And the only bad day I had was when a client rang me up uh, and she was very distraught and said, you've got all my money in, in, in bank deposits. I said, isn't it wonderful? You're going to be 5% better off at the end of the year and everybody else is going to be about 25% worse off because they're in the market. Oh, no, but they're in banks. <laughs> I said, no, good point, good point. We had thought of that. <laughs> Uh, there are some better banks as well as some bad banks. We, we've taken a lot of trouble to put it in the banks we think are going to survive. And if by any chance we're wrong, your biggest problem won't be the fact that you lost some money in a bank. Your biggest problem will be that the whole economic system will have collapsed and everything will have gone wrong. We, we will undoubtedly see central bank change of policy before we get to the point where the bad banks collapse. And I'm pleased to say that was an accurate prediction. It did take quite a bit of bank collapse before the central banks changed their mind, uh, but we, we did eventually get there. So most people now agree, uh, and quite a few people agreed at the time, that the credit excesses uh, were unacceptable, and quite a lot of people, uh, including the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrat Party in opposition, said that there was excessive credit in the system uh, in the run-up to 2007-08, uh, and so I think everybody's now agreed and everybody writes the history now to say, well, wasn't it dreadful? They shouldn't have allowed all that credit. They think it was mainly the fault of the commercial banks. But surely the bank regulator, the central bank, should take quite a lot of the responsibility. They could see what was going on. At any point, they could have issued instructions to rein in credit. At any point, they could have raised interest rates sufficiently to send a warning note that credit growth was getting excessive, but they didn't. But I think they made a bigger mistake after they'd allowed the excess. Uh, and they then decided to collapse the system uh, and give them a moral lecture on how wrong it was that they'd advanced all this money to people and companies, uh, when surely they should have tried to nurse the banks through that disaster and planned with the banks in private how they would gradually reduce the size of their balance sheets and tackle bad debts. Uh, demanding that shareholders and bondholders took a hit where the banks were particularly stretched. That's how capitalism works. Uh, but instead they didn't. They decided to lecture them, they decided to throttle them of liquidity and credit, and I think it was a much dearer solution they eventually had to put in because they wouldn't advance the money in the early days and then come up with a plan. I think they now agree with me because they've said that for the future, banks will have living wills and there will be a, a way in which <coughs> the core network bank will survive but all the other bits will be sold off or closed down and that there will be a progressive hit to shareholders and bondholders so there shouldn't be recourse to taxpayers. 
But in this crisis, they, they decided to go to taxpayers. I can remember um, the government looked a little worried, briefly, when we were debating RBS. And they decided to put enormous amounts of public money behind RBS. And I just took them through the size of RBS's balance sheet. And this seemed to come as news to most of the people voting this money through. Uh, and I explained that with a balance sheet of over two trillion, the bank had a bigger balance sheet than the annual GDP. And that if the bank lost 2% of its gross assets, which wouldn't have been a very big loss in the circumstances, it would have lost the defense budget for a year because I was trying to get across to the politicians that even the state was quite stretched to take on the excessive balance sheet of RBS. RBS has subsequently reduced its balance sheet mass massively, as it had to do because of the risks involved. So we had big falls in markets, and we had a very deep recession, as we saw in the earlier figures. So what should we try and learn from these brutal and unhelpful events? First question I would pose to you is, should central banks be independent? And it is conventional wisdom that central bank independence is a fine thing, uh, and that any mistakes that have occurred is despite the central bank independence, not because of it, uh, and that if we didn't get it right last time, maybe we just need to have an even more independent central bank. But we do need to ask, how was it that these partially independent or allegedly independent central banks made such catastrophic errors? Because nobody can look at those three crises and say, didn't the central banks do well? You may still wish to blame the clearing banks more, but the central banks have overall responsibility for the banking system. They have enormous powers to raise rates, make credit dearer, to ration credit, to send formal or informal instructions to banks, to demand change of directors, to demand change of policy. In the old days, governor of the Bank of England moved his eyebrow, and the chief executive of a clearing bank understood why the eyebrow had moved and went off and got the rights issue or reduced the property lending or whatever it was they needed to do. So nobody can say it's a great success. But I would argue a more fundamental constitutional point, and that is I do not think you can have an independent central bank in a democracy. In the end, in a democracy, the voting public expect their prime minister or their president to be the responsible elected official. And they're quite happy for the central bank to be independent all the time things are going well. But if things start to go wrong, the public will not say, oh, isn't it wonderful we've got an independent bank, pity, pity a mistake's been made. They'll say, well, why don't you do something about it? You're the president, you're the prime minister, you have the majority. Change the way the central bank operates. And what we see in the United Kingdom uh, is, over this period of three, three disasters or more, uh, we've had a lot of meddling by the politicians with the title statutes of the Bank of England and its powers and duties. And we've moved from a system where interest rates were settled jointly uh, between the, the Chancellor and the Governor, with the Prime Minister involved if he or she wished, to a system where the bank does take the interest rate decision. But lots of other decisions went the other way, and we, we've moved from a system in the 70s where the Governor had enormous powers over clearing banks that politicians didn't usually get involved with, 
to a system in the Brown era where all of the banking regulation was hived off to an independent regulator. So that part of the background to the really big crisis is a series of flaming rows and turf fights between the Bank of England and the financial regulator, which got in the way of effective regulation. And Brown's so-called independence of the Bank of England was a very lopsided affair, which almost cost him the resignation of the then governor, because whilst the bank got enhanced powers on interest rates, it had to shed all its mighty powers over individual bank management, and its rearguard action left it with this rather unsatisfactory position where the Bank of England did so-called systemic risk, and the financial regulator did all the detailed regulation of the individual banks that made up that systemic risk, uh, often in a different way to the way the bank was operating. And we've seen that even in the era of so-called independence, there has actually been quite a lot of political intervention. Um, there was Brown's decision to change the inflation target from RPI to CPI, which undoubtedly eased policy, and I assume that's why he wanted to do it, as well as being European standardization. Uh, there was then Darling's, I think, very sensible intervention during the height of the crisis when the bank didn't want to reduce interest rates when money was clearly too tight. And Darling went to an international conference of finance ministers. They all agreed on concerted action to bring interest rates down. Darling came home, or I presume his people rang the Bank of England, and they decided to preserve the fiction that the bank was independent. And so the bank spontaneously decided to have a monetary policy committee meeting out of the normal diary and spontaneously decided to reduce the interest rates by the amount the finance ministers had in mind. Well, well done, darling, I say, and why did we go through the rigmarole? Why didn't we just say, this is a crisis, the politician has to act, and he, he made a sensible intervention. If you look at the German example, it's even more dramatic, and Germany is, is the poster boy or girl of the independent central bank. Post-war Germany, dreadful fears and memories of hyperinflation and bad central banking in the interwar period, which had disfigured German society and, and politics, uh, decided on a very strict monetary control regime, and they did a very good job. They, they gave Germany stable monetary framework, um, pretty low inflation throughout the post-war recovery, but not throttling the recovery, allowing a good economic recovery. So, well done, central bank. <clears throat> but then two very important decisions came along. Uh, the first was the unification of the two Germanys when the Berlin Wall came down. And the politicians said, we have to make it one Ostmark to the Deutschmark to show we're all one family. And one Ostmark to the De Deutschmark was a massive overvaluation of the Ostmark, and it started a huge <coughs> economic turbulence within Germany. Uh, with a big inflation in the Ostmark area, massive migration of talented people from the Ostmark area to the Deutschmark area where they could be more competitive and be better paid, and huge strains between the two Germanys in those early days. Uh, a bloating of state debt so that even Germany didn't meet the Maastricht criteria and the Euro criteria that were established, and quite a bit of general financial dislocation. So, uh, Germany showed that when there's a big political decision, your independent central bank is overridden because the central bank said, have a rational rate, and the politician said, no, we need a, a political rate. Then even more uh, priceless, 
independent German central banks sole task to defend the Deutsche Mark and make sure you have a good stable Deutsche Mark that finances a good economy. They're then told that the Deutsche Mark is going to be abolished and they just said, fine. And so <laughs> their whole rationale disappeared overnight, collapse of Stout Party independent central bank. Now, why did the Bank of England get its policy so wrong uh, on at least three separate occasions over that period? And that is also quite difficult to grasp, because it wasn't as if everybody agreed with what they were doing. There were critics and dissident voices, and for part of the period, there was an alternative monetary policy committee that was providing a strand of advice that I think would probably have created greater stability than the bank itself did. Not time tonight to go into all the reasons, but I think one of the reasons is I think they've got a very odd, complicated model of the economy. And the governor has produced quite recently a very thoughtful lecture on all this, which seems to be in contradiction to what the Monetary Policy Committee does, because the, the fundamental concept in a lot of the MPC's work, and indeed in Treasury work, is the concept of capacity. And they say that there's a finite capacity, you run out of people to employ, you run out of goods to put into your production system in your country. And so as you hit capacity, inflation goes up and, and growth tails off because there are limits to how much new you can produce and you bid up labour and you bid up goods and components uh, to try and meet the excessive demand and that becomes inflationary. And so they're always looking at this capacity gap, output gap, and trying to judge inflation from it. But why do you do that at the national level in this highly global world? Because what actually happens now is if we run out of uh, reasonably priced labour, we invite in two or 300,000 people a year from abroad who do take jobs for less pay than people at home would demand. And um, where we suddenly run out of bricks for our building sites, because we've lost some brick capacity, we start importing Dutch bricks, because they've got some spare ones. And so we don't actually run out of bricks, and we don't have to pay very much more for the bricks, because there is a reasonably competitive market in bricks. And so it goes on item by item. And as the governor accepted in his lecture, uh, this means that you don't have anything like the same output constraints, you don't have the same restraints uh, on your economy in a global world as you did when things were much more national. So I think that's one of the underlying reasons why they get their, their figures wrong. And did fiscal policy exacerbate these problems? Well, yes, it did in some cases. Uh, it was clearly the case that in the 70s, <coughs> excessive build-up of public debt undermined confidence in the pound and uh, edged the policy to greater austerity, uh, and in the, in the 1970s, I can remember, um, we were offered government stock on 15% yields, and people now think this is inconceivable, because if you get 1%, you think you're doing extremely well, but it isn't that long ago, I'm not that old, you, you did actually have these extraordinary high rates, and for people who don't believe me, those rates are still quite common in parts of the emerging market world when things go wrong and when they have a nasty bout of inflation, as they do from time to time. And there have been occasions when Greek bond rates have gone into double figures thanks to the euro. So these are modern realities as well. Uh, and I think fiscal policy uh, was probably a little bit too loose in the run-up to the 
08 crisis as well, but I think it was mainly a monetary and banking phenomenon. But to have the state borrowing too much at the same time was not terribly helpful. Now, how do the authorities balance these things? It is difficult. Uh, it's easy for a commentator to say, I'd have done something differently. It matters a bit more if you said it at the time, because you're in real time and you're understanding their problems as they go along. But they do need to understand the interaction of fiscal policy and monetary policy. Now, if, if you bring it right up to date, I think at the moment, uh, this year, I think the UK has decided on a tight fiscal policy. It turned out to be a lot tighter, tighter than the Treasury said it was planning. As between March and the latest budget, uh, there was an involuntary 12 billion fiscal tightening, uh, which they've admitted to, but they're only going to relax it the following year. Uh, and a very, very tough monetary tightening. The Bank of England has decided on surprisingly tight money. Uh, money growth has halved over the last year. Uh, interest rates have gone up twice from very little to little. Uh, but it's important. It sends a, sends a signal. More importantly, they've cancelled all the special facilities to the, the clearing banks that they were, were putting there to promote enterprise and activity. They've sent out very tough FPC guidance, cutting car loans with a big collapse in the car market that we've seen. That was ably assisted by the Chancellor with his tax attack on vehicle purchasing uh, in the budget before last, uh, the 2017 budget. Uh, and we've, we've seen um, general advice from the Bank of England to rein in consumer credit and so forth. So there's a, in Britain you've got a very tight monetary tightening and you've got a fiscal tightening going on at the same time. In America you've got a massive fiscal loosening going on uh, with tax cuts that have generated a lot of extra growth. So America is the fast growing advanced economy. But there you've got quite a monetary tightening going on now. The, uh, although the clearing banks there are capable of advancing good loans to all these new economic operators who like the tax cuts and see the growth. Uh, even in America now, money growth has fallen off by a couple of points in, in the last few months, and the Fed is very prominent in tightening with um, reversing QE going into um, quantitative uh, reductions, uh, getting rid of its bond acquisitions, and at the same time putting up interest rates. So you just need to be careful, and that's the, the modern commentary, and why are markets currently having the shivers? I think it's mainly because they're very worried that money is getting turned off too soon. <clears throat> There's no great inflation out there in the advanced countries. Uh, the Eurozone is about to discontinue all quantitative easing. Even the Japanese living on quantitative easing uh, for years and years after their far bigger crash uh, are going a bit easy on it and talking about tightening, and so it's all a bit difficult. I thought I'd briefly mention the role of the EU in all of these matters and ask myself, was the EU in any way to blame for all this? Well, they were clearly to blame for the 1990 to 1992 recession because it was an EU policy, the exchange rate mechanism, which was the prime cause of all the disruption that we experienced in the United Kingdom. If we hadn't been shadowing the Deutschmark, we could have carried on with Lawson's perfectly good mon monetary targeting, and instead of having gross credit inflation, we would have had sensible controls over money and credit and avoided the, the crash. But I think even in 74-6, uh, 
relatively new member of the European Economic Community, as it then was, I think there was a, a minor subplot in the disaster, because at exactly the time where money and banking policy, domestic matters, had gone ho hopelessly wrong, we were facing the first onslaught of very competitive product from France and Germany, tariff-free, coming in. And as just one example, UK car output halved in the first decade of our membership of the EEC, because we couldn't take the tariff-free competition, and steel output also fell very sharply, and the five very large integrated works of the ambitious labour plan of the 1960s turned out to be uh, in grave difficulty, and we had 20 years of political arguing about how quickly you closed down the five great integrated works to uh, accept the fact that you weren't competitive against German steel and then against Asian steel as it emerged. <clears throat> in the most recent crisis, the EU was caught up in it, and I think it's a case of the EU authorities making similar errors to the American authorities and the British authorities. There was a common uh, view of it all. They all shared the same view of what was permissible and what was wrong. And so we had three different central banks all in <coughs> close conversation with each other, making exactly the same mistakes at the same point, which is worse than useless because then it maximizes systemic damage. It would have been nice if there'd been a little bit more independence of that kind amongst the central banks and that one or two of them had taken a different view over banking risks than, than they did. But what undoubtedly is true is that the, the problems went on longer in the Eurozone because the Euro does greatly complicate and worsen the problems. And I will, I will close on Italy. Because my biggest worry today is the standoff that we currently see between the elected Italian government and the Euro authorities. And it goes right to the heart of the dangers of the Euro architecture uh, as currently constructed. The Italian government say, we have recently been elected, we have a popular mandate, we have very high youth unemployment, we have 10% plus general unemployment, uh, we don't have any great inflationary problem, we have public services that need improving. We have bridges that need rebuilding. We have taxation that is too high for enterprise. So we intend to provide a carefully thought through boost with a bit more public spending, a bit less tax, and we think we'll then get some more growth, and this should be our democratic right. And that would normally be a good case, but not if you're a member of the euro, because the Euro authorities say, yes, but that's all very well, Italy, but you're not an independent democracy. You're a member of the Eurozone. And our rules, Italy, are, are very straightforward. Uh, your state debt should be 60% of GDP, is currently 132% of GDP. Uh, that your state borrowings never go over 3% of GDP, and they now believe in the EU headquarters that the Italian budget year two would be 3.1%, because they clearly want to stress that they are breaking the unbreakable limit. But they've also said that we have reviewed your budgets recently and in the past, and in order to start to adjust that very high stock estate debt, uh, you should not be borrowing anything like 2.4%, the Italian view of what their deficit will be next year, but maybe you should borrow 0.8%, and we soon want to see you 
at zero or repaying debt, because how are you ever going to work away on this stock of debt? And you can see their point of view, because they share a currency, they share a common short-term interest rate with the others, and if you try and free ride by borrowing too much and behaving badly, it's very irritating to the other members of the club because they're playing by the rules and not, not over-borrowing. Worse still, uh, because the, the Eurozone doesn't have a proper transfer system, which you need in a single currency to take money from the rich to the poor and to even out high unemployment uh, against the more successful areas, uh, they've done it by the back door. Um, and what happens is that Germany, Luxembourg, Netherlands, deposit their very considerable surpluses at the European Central Bank, and they very kindly deposit them there at zero interest with no stated repayment date. And the ECB very kindly lends this money on, primarily to Italy and Spain, a bit to Portugal and Greece, uh, at zero interest with no repayment date, so that the system keeps going. Put very simply, Germany's very good at making and selling cars. They sell it to Italians and Greeks who can't afford the cars. So the Italian and Greeks need to borrow the money, and the only people who can actually borrow the money from are the car makers in Germany who are making all the money out of selling the cars. So it is done by a very backdoor route that Germany gets the surplus deposited in the ECB, gets roots into the Italian banks or the Greek banks, and is then lent on to the, the buyer of the car, and that's how it works, and don't tell the Germans, because a lot of German voters wouldn't be very pleased to discover they had 956 billion euros now safely deposited in the European Central Bank and lent out primarily to Italy and Spain. So that is where we are. And why do I worry about it? Well, because I look at what they did to Greece and Cyprus. And when Greece and Cyprus had their overborrowing problems, they were told they had to correct, they didn't really want to. And so what the European Central Bank did was they said, we're no longer going to supply all this cheap or zero-interest money to your banking system, uh, so you're going to have to make adjustments. And as soon as they said that, people who could pay their bills and had the money deposited in a Greek bank couldn't pay the bills because they weren't allowed to draw money out of their bank account. That soon got the attention of the Greek government. The Greek government people decided they wanted to stay in the euro, so they went along with the budget recommendations. Now, it was still quite a wobble for the rest of us. Markets didn't like this kind of thing. But scale that up tenfold, which is roughly what you have to do to get from Greece to Italy, and it won't just be a wobble. It will be a, a very, very serious problem. So it's desperately in our interests that they reach some kind of accommodation between the irresistible force of Italian democracy and the immovable object of Euro rules. But I think it really requires more fundamental architecture because I don't believe you can have a single currency without more generous transfer systems, and you need to sign into that, which is why single currencies normally go with single countries, where people feel that affinity and are happy, happy to share their money. So there are just a few lessons from the current situation and the past, that we, we need wise merchant banking. I think we need domestic targets for money growth and for inflation. And maybe we need to have a more active debate, because I notice in the economics profession and commentariat profession, which I also, on a part-time basis, belong to, there is a huge premium on going with the flow. 
And if I ever write anything different from the flow, it's that John Redwood being awkward rather than an interesting view that maybe you need to explore. So let me now uh, invite you to tell me why I'm wrong. Thanks very much, John. Um, you've disappointed me a little bit today because I've just been teaching my undergraduates here all about the fact that there's no such thing as cost push inflation, that there's no such thing as the Phillips curve, that you can't demand, manage an output gap, and that all of our problems are down to monetary mismanagement. And they asked me, are there any economists who agree with you? And I said, no. Uh, and there you are agreeing with many of these points. So to Very regain good. some of my credibility, I need to pick you up on two points, um, which come towards the end of what you were talking about. I'm quite happy to blame the Bank of England for the first two crises. The third one, though, the Bank of England were not involved in the regulatory side of things, and I do see regulatory weaknesses in the UK economy, which were then exposed by a US problem, not by our problem. So the first thing I would like to ask is what you feel is the impact of the US on that third crisis. The next thing is to do with fiscal policy. You talked about fiscal tightening uh, and the damage that fiscal tightening is doing, whereas I tell all my students there's been no fiscal tightening. Adding less to the national debt every year is still fixed fiscal expansion. It's just slowing the rate at which you're expanding things so that, to, in my mind, there has been no fiscal tightening. So if you could just comment on fiscal tightening and the US role in the central banking problem for the last crisis. Well, no, no you, you reprove me with a good austerity-based critique there, and you're, you're technically right. We, we still have a bit of fiscal loosening going on, but much less fiscal loosening than we've had in recent years, and well below average fiscal loosening. Uh, and I just think it's probably a little bit excessive at the moment. Um, some people would argue there's nothing wrong with the state borrowing, particularly when interest rates are this low in order to make capital investment, for example. Now, one needs to unpick that, because sometimes what the state regards as investment is something nice to have with no return. Other times it is generally, genuinely a productive investment. So I would argue a little about that. But no, you're right, that there's still a little bit of fiscal loosening going on each year, but rate of change matters, and perceptions matter, and it's, it's a lot tighter than it was uh, a few years ago, and it's a lot tighter than it is on average. I don't think you can let the Bank of England off completely from responsibility for 0708 because they were still responsible for systemic risk. So they were responsible for the whole thing. They were having a turf fight with the independent banking regulator and the Chancellor should have seen that and sorted it out, but he didn't. Uh, but it's the case that the bank surely was the senior of the two regulators when it came to overall responsibility for the system and it was the overall system that went down it wasn't just a few individual banks the whole thing started to go wrong because the banks that went wrong were of systemic proportions and were linked with each other nor do i think it fair as europeans and british politicians would like to do to just blame the americans did the Americans have, a, have their own spectacular crisis by bad errors? Yes, of course they did. But we didn't just inherit theirs. Um, we, we would have survived rather better if it was just 
too many car loans and too many housing loans in the United States of America. Uh, we went down because our banks made exactly the same kind of problems and had business across the Atlantic, but also around the world. It was the big derivative um, pyramid that was part of the destabilization. Uh, it was the superactive trading, and it was the fact that our banks had gone down to four or five percent cash ratios instead of double-figure cash ratios, so they had these enormously bloated balance sheets. And I think the bank does have to take responsibility for that. They would have understood it. It's curious they never blew the whistle on it. So one of the big problems that I think there is in the economy is the trade deficit. Because we're basically, in effect, borrowing money to cover the gap between what we've got in imports and what we're actually sending out in exports. So as someone with a manufacturing background, um, do you think manufacturing can help solve that problem? Do you think that... Um, there will, what policies, rather, do you think will be able to be created to enable manufacturing to solve the problem? And do you think that future governments have the will to actually put the re-emphasis back onto manufacturing? Well, I would like to see more manufacturing in the United Kingdom, but it's not the only way of removing the imbalances in the balance of payments. I think I'm more worried about the balance of payments than a lot of people are, and I've, I've always thought of our two deficits, I'm more nervous at the moment about the balance of payments one than I am about the government deficit. Um, the government deficit is eminently financeable at the moment. It's mainly financeable from domestic sources, so if you owe, owe the money to yourselves, it's not much of a problem. And the state debt is greatly exaggerated at the moment because people use the gross figure whereas I always take the $435 billion off that we've carefully bought back in because we literally owe that money to ourselves. And we could cancel it tomorrow, but that's thought to be impolite to say you would do that. But the Americans are now gradually cancelling all the debt they brought in over a time period. And if you did it too abruptly without other offsetting action, it would be, of course, very, contra very contractionary. So you have to think about as and when you might want to do that. But it's not a debt. I mean, it, we, we go through this strange routine where um, the Treasury pays the interest on the debt to the Bank of England very virtuously, and then the Bank of England pays the interest back to the Treasury as a dividend because the Bank of England is wholly owned by the Treasury and state. Of course it is, so anything it earns is ours. So that, that sort of strikes me as a bit odd. But I've been a bit more worried about the balance of payments because you need to finance that in other people's currencies. And if you allow your currency to fall too much, then that becomes very expensive and, and difficult to do. And it certainly means you have to keep on selling either bonds or assets or both. And we have been selling a lot of assets in particular in recent years uh, in order to afford the cars and washing machines we've been importing. But the balance payment has um, several elements that you can attack. I'm were we, for example, to leave the European Union, now there's a radical idea, um, and, and not pay them any more money, the balance of payments would improve by 15% immediately, because clearly all the, all the payments out of the country to the EU are one of the negative flows on, on the balance of payments. So that would be a very easy one to start to adjust the balance of payments, were the idea to be more popular. 
Um, and then you've, you've got the trade in goods with the European Union, which is the biggest part of the, the problem, if you call it that, of the deficit, because that's where we have a very big, very big deficit. Uh, and there again, I think there is scope for doing things, depending on what happens uh, as a result of the current debates going on about our future relationship. But we have a 20 billion deficit in food with the European Union. Uh, were we to have a domestic agriculture and fishing policy, uh, which encouraged more home production with more home food pr processing that would follow from producing more of our own fish and milk and, uh, and uh, um, beef and so forth, uh, then we might make quite a big inroad into the 20 billion deficit, which is built up over the years of the CFP and the CAP. But it, it may be that the way we get rid of the deficit or reduce the deficit um, is just by doing more of what we're very good at, which is services. And it may be that we're best at selling services to non-EU, because we seem to do a lot better at trade with non-EU than with the EU in terms of surplus versus deficit. So it may be that just doing what we, we are good at and putting those services into Asia and into the Americas is, is our best way of bringing the two lines together. Some people would tell me not to worry, because they say all the time, this is financeable. Isn't it very good that we're living to a higher living standard um, and not having lots of forced saving through generating a surplus? But I think you can go too far down that route, uh, because you do get to the point where you run out of good assets to sell to pay the bills, or you get to the point where people want to charge you rather a lot for borrowing the money to carry on living beyond your means. So I, I share some of your concerns. And as a former manufacturer, yes, I think there are huge opportunities to make, make more things in Britain. And it's very good to see some of it being onshored again. I mean, I was having a debate with the boss of Siemens UK on Friday on any questions. And he was one of these people who thinks that Brexit will be cataclysmic for his and similar businesses. And so I looked up his business and the statements of Siemens. And I was delighted to see that their turnover in the UK rose 20% in 2017 after the vote. I was even more delighted to see that last, last year in this, they've announced a major new train building plant going into a place just outside Hull. And that they've announced a very major new 3D printing facility in Worcester. And they've announced that while saying that um, the UK might just leave the EU without an agreement. So I put it to him that he didn't really think the outlook was cataclysmic at all, because he's obviously an intelligent man and an able businessman. And why on earth would he be putting two socking great manufacturing plants into the UK uh, if he was that pessimistic? I don't think he had a very good answer to that one. If you were appointed governor of an independent central bank of China tomorrow, what would be your first decision? I'd resign. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm sorry, it was a cheap joke, but um, I mean, the Chinese system is so different. But I know what you mean. If, if it were a normal country where you were allowed to have a genuine independent view, because I don't really believe that's the case in China. Uh, I think President Xi decide what, what, what happens, and let's hope he is wise. Um, 
what would you do? Well, I think you'd largely do what they're doing. Uh, I think they are well aware of their problems. They are desperately trying to clean up the shadow banking system. They are desperately trying to get some more honest figures out of the, the main state banks. They're probably right not to want very honest figures anytime soon, because that might be, in some cases, bad for confidence. As long as they know them, we don't need to see them all published, I guess. And as long as they carry on standing behind them, it, it will be fine. But they need a pace of reform. I think they've maybe slightly over-tightened. I think they're part of this general background I've been describing. Um, I think China is normally good at taking the very long view, and I think with banks like that, you would take a pretty long view. But all the time they've got a printing press in the back garden, which they have, and all the time they have so much state ownership or involvement in the banking system, they don't need to have a crash. And they are taking great pride in the fact that mighty America and Europe had these spectacular crashes a few years ago, and they didn't, and they pumped a lot of liquidity in and deliberately created quite a lot of loans of very variable quality, shall we say, in order to keep the Chinese economy going, which worked. It was very helpful to the world economy they did that. And now they've got to manage their way through it. Uh, and they are now using a metaphor, driving the vehicle with one foot on the accelerator to try and keep the economy going, and one foot on the brake trying to slow the excess credit, and trying to get the balance point. And not too bad, but I think perhaps just a little bit too much brake at the moment. So I think I would be saying to the President, you know, President, that you need high employment and rising living standards, that maybe we need to take this pace of honest reform of these banks a little bit more slowly. Thank you. Well, the themes that I felt running through your talk was competence, really, wasn't it? It is sort of looking for competence. And indeed, I, in the last slide, the word wisdom comes up. And but the challenge with wisdom is that it often means taking a contrary view. And politically, that's a very uncertain thing to do with, of course, the very close interaction between our, our politicians and policymakers. Um, and I, I guess I wondered, I mean, beyond the sort of the, the relationship between the Bank of England and the Treasury, does your analysis lead you to reflect on whether there are changes in political structures and systems and processes which might nurture more competence in our decision-making? Well, it reminds us that there is still quite a political involvement because um, <clears throat> clearly in the Brown era, particularly with Mr. Balls as advisor, there were exchanges, so we say, between the so-called independent bank and the government over what was appropriate and they were, they were both informed and maybe at times advising from the government side on, on what should happen. And then in the, the world of George Osborne, there was one very important political intervention, which was a decision to appoint Governor Carney. And that was uh, the first open competition with advertisements. Uh, but we, we believe that Mr. Osborne thought Mr. Carney should apply and Mr. Carney turned out to be the best candidate. Uh, so that I find interesting. And there was clearly an identity of view between Mr. Osborne and Mr. Carney on some of the big issues in the run-up to the referendum, that we, which was extremely convenient from the government's point of view. I'm quite sure Mr. Carney came to an independent view, but it was felicitous for the government that the independent view was the same as, as the government view. And I think that 
caused some trouble because half the country was of a different view and there was a danger in all of that. It just reinforces my point. There is no independent central bank in a democracy. Um, and what you do want is for the politicians to be brave enough to appoint a governor that can do the uncomfortable thing if they really have to. But ideally, they see off the need to do that. You know, why would you need panic interest rate rises, which no government would really want? What if everything else has gone wrong? So it would be better if there are exchanges. So I would defend features of the old system where a more honest exchange is permitted between the governor and the chancellor and or prime minister, um, while still having a big enough figure as governor so that if there is a genuine disagreement, he either can, within his powers, do things, or he would resign, and that would probably make the point in another way. Good, thank you. I think we're out of time. Uh, I would just like to thank uh, John Redwood for an illuminating canter through the last few crises. When Steve and I talked about the lecture, we said it should be thought-provoking and controversial, and I think we can all agree we've had lots of that. Thank you so much for sparing the time to be with us tonight for a very informative evening. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can find out more information about our talks and events at www.libf.ac.uk forward slash events. Want to get involved? Contact us at podcast at libf.ac.uk.